Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Virtually Legal. So much of your time is spent wondering how to get a training contract and how to perform well on that training contract. So you might be surprised to learn that there is a whole life post-qualification and law firms nowadays want solicitors with business acumen and an eye on the future. Obviously, Abby and I have neither of these things, but fortunately we found a guest that is able to talk about this topic. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Hi Molly, hi Abby. Um, for context we've had considerable technical difficulties getting here so Matt thank you for putting up with us and hopefully we won't eat into your evening too much so could we start by you explaining to the listeners kind of a whistle-stop tour of your career path where it started and where you are now sure well going back too many years than I care to, to think of um back into the late 80s and early 90s then um I started out working um, as a clerk for a very small uh, multi-service firm. Um, and we did everything from criminal work to debt recovery to commercial disputes, commercial property, matrimonial. It was absolutely everything. And, and as a clerk, then I was expected to, to cover all those areas as well. And did you get into that before or after university? That was, that was before. That was, um, I started it um, as work experience uh, when I was 16. And then just kept it as summer jobs um, as, as I went through university. Um, and then having come out of university, then I had a year before law school, um, which I wanted to use for, um, for some further work experience and also the opportunity to travel. So that's when I first started working for Erwin Mitchell, again, as, as a clerk um, and spent six months there wondering where on earth I was going to get a training contract. Mm-hmm. Um, only for on my last day with the firm to um, be told I, I had applied um, and um, my application was likely to be considered to be successful. That is a sick joke that they left it until the last day. <laughs> and they really left you hanging there. Well, to be fair, they um, at the time, then they were looking for um, Oxbridge candidates only. And, and I definitely wasn't Oxbridge. So, and was that an actual policy, just Oxbridge? That's, that's like yes. suits. I didn't <laughs> think that that was allowed. I always thought that that was well, a joke remember, that remember suits this, made. This, this was the early 90s. So, yes, it, oh, we it have was social allowed. mobility, Molly. Definitely not social mobility at the time, apart from they then did take me on. Um, and um, so then started my uh, training contract at Owen Mitchell's. They had uh, fairly recently opened a Birmingham office. I, I started out the training contract in Sheffield. Um, and there were then some personnel changes in that small Birmingham office. So I was offered the chance to go and and help really get that Birmingham office moving, um, which for me st- was struck me as a great idea um, to be able to prove myself in a fairly small environment, um, but within a, a large and growing firm. Um, so spent 15 years in Birmingham, during which time I had various periods of secondment um, with uh, RAC, Eshaw, Direct Line, um, and then moved into about 2007, 2008, back to the Sheffield office um, to head up the, um, the personal injury department uh, within Owen Mitchell's uh, running the lower value claims. And then about five months ago, then moved with my team to Minster Law in Wakefield. And so a brief like look at your LinkedIn will reveal that you progressed from trainee to partner 
relatively quickly. What do you attribute that to? Um, I think it was finding the opportunity. I think always looking to to do the job well and, and to work hard, uh, but all and, and be willing to take on tasks. And it's not about being a suck up. Um, it's just about being able to to grab the opportunities that are put put in front of you. I think I did have the benefit of having had the period before training contract where um, I'd worked in the firm doing all sorts of different work and really already come to the conclusion as to the, the area that I wanted to specialise in, which then made it really easy in the training contract to make sure that I was focused in on that area and, and could then be excited about doing that work. So Matt, you've obviously mentioned Minster Law, but so how did you actually start the conversation about a joint venture um, acquisition um, and how did sort of the deal with Minister come about? I, I, it, was, it was slightly different, but I, I, I guess it was from the kind of same starting point of um, by having more of a strategic mindset. Basically, all that for me, that all that means is um, looking at, at where the, the legal market is looking where my clients are um, and and thinking five years ahead as to uh, where the clients will be, where the legal services business will be and, and where I will be as a, as a result. And uh, we were in a situation where we had um, quite a lot of law reform, which was going to change the area of law that I work in. And, and the business model for that. Um, and to be able to succeed would require significant investment um, in technology um, and upheaval in the process as well. So investment in, in process redesign as well. And the, the firm that I was at at the time over Mitchell, um, then that wasn't going to be their focus. And, and it was it was a joint and open conversation uh, with my my then colleagues at Over Mitchell around that um, to understand that um, their investment appetite for growth and development lay in separate areas as much as mine very much was still in that same area where I could still see an opportunity for for significant growth. So <clears throat> it followed on from that we had a conversation uh, with Minister Law who were very much focused on investment in the area that I wanted to, to work in um, and, and really had a lot, of, a lot of similar vision to myself. Um, but it, if I hadn't had um, that ability to, to think ahead and to understand where the future was going in the market, then, then that conversation would never have happened. I think people always say about your training contracts, like, just get your head down, get your head down. But actually, it sounds like you need to do the opposite. And not, I guess it's, it would be hard when all you can think about is, oh my God, billable hours and targets and just getting absorbed by your day-to-day -day work. But like, look up and think what the bigger picture is. Did you find that as you became a partner at Erwin Mitchell that you had more time to do that? Obviously, I've never been a partner. I don't know what it entails day-to-day. -day. But is that something that's, that's obviously more at the forefront of your mind when you reach those levels? Um, yes, it's more at the forefront of your mind, do you have more time for it? Um, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> I think you just become more time poor as a partner because you're expected to either continue the casework if, you, if you're a caseworker or um, to, to make sure your team deliver on their casework and, and their fees and their, their char chargeable hours. Uh, but it is that requirement to, to 
to lift your head up even further and look further ahead. And thinking about offerings, let's say you weren't the only company that approached what is now Minster Law and said, I've got this proposition for you and I think that my team would be the best team to deliver it. And you were in competition for work as law firms often are. What what do law firms and individuals and teams use to kind of sell themselves against their competition? That, that was a very unique circumstance. So taking a more general um, question, then I think about, I think these days it's about demonstrating the value add and the understanding of, of the legal market and the, and the, and the wider market that, that they're operating in. Being able to to add value to to any client, whether that's a consumer or a, a corporate client, um, is something that lawyers have been particularly bad at. Um, that many lawyers have seen their work as being purely transactional. Of um, you've asked me for this service, so I will give you that service, and I will charge you for that uh, that service, and not looked for the the wider opportunities to um, to work with the client about how the service can be offered in a different way, a cheaper way, a more efficient way, a more effective way. Um, and, and really the hourly rate model um, fights against being effective and efficient. Because I can imagine that when you are focused on the hourly model, like you say, it's not going to be particularly appealing to think, how can I add value to this client? Because presumably if you're doing something outside the box a little bit of je ne sais quoi um you can you charge for that and then if you can't charge for that is it going to be frowned upon that you're offering it um i think the law firms that are winning um, and have been winning for a few years then then they recognize the value of that um out of the box thinking and and challenging the current model um and for, for anybody who's in those as progressive firms, then, then they'll be given those opportunities and they'll, they'll be listened to. Aside from just simply winning work, how is it that law firms stay profitable? Because it's not something that surprised me when I was going through the first round of training contract applications, but it came up a lot, the idea of the law firm as a business and how do you make that business as efficient and cost-efficient as possible for any area of law where um, time is charged in, in a traditional six-minute unit, then there is recognition that clients will push back, and and quite often, then you might record say ten hours worth of work, but you won't recover ten hours worth of payment from the client because they'll challenge it, and that they will. Um, understandably say well you, you say that particular task took two hours but uh, it didn't in other situations in, in litigation then um, then the courts can assess the time and the reasonableness of the time so you don't necessarily always recover um, all the time that's recorded and this is what I mean by effectiveness or in this context it's what I mean by effectiveness is the the firm's that are winning are the ones that if they do an hour's work, they recover an hour, an hour's charges for it, um, as opposed to other firms who might record an hour's work but only recover 30 minutes worth of, of cost for that. But also 
it, it's looking for those opportunities where you can take out the non-chargeable time. There's always lots of um, of activity, admin activity, um, that is non-chargeable, and either um, taking that out altogether by looking at um, some form of automation um, or intelligent processing, um, or by taking that admin work away from a very expensive lawyer and, and placing mm. it with a less mm. expensive admin resource. Matt, you said um, there that that was more of a general example. Did you have a specific example within sort of um, your field? So in my world, an easy example is that if um, on, a, on a personal injury case, I want to take the the details of how the accident happened, I can record those at day one and put them into the, the case management system. And if I write them in the right way, then when I then do the letter of claim, um, then it can just lift and drop that same wording. I don't have to rekey it. And then when I do the court proceedings, then it, I can lift and drop the same wording again into the court proceedings and I don't need to rekey it. Um, and so you get your reusable data. Um, just by inputting it in a smart way at day one. Um, so investing in processes and the, and the technology to support those processes um, yeah. has been a straightforward way to do that. It's, it's not rocket science, um, and, and most other industries have been doing this for a very long time, but lawyers seem to struggle with it. So aside from being stuck in the dark ages, what do you think is another of like kind of the biggest challenges that are facing law firms at the moment? Um, profit margins, are they are being squeezed like never before. And why is that, do you think? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, you're you're, you'd spot. expect me to say it's this because it's the cost of trading solicitors. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm, I'm only joking. Um, well, a little bit. Um, <laughs> No, the, the, the cost of, of staff is is going up when the the price that clients will pay isn't necessarily going up um, for high-end commercial work. Um, then you can still charge some handsome hourly rates. And um, for the work, for, quite frankly, we should be able to charge high rates for because it is the rocket science end of law. Then... Um, then that will always be tolerated. But I think there's an increasing realisation by the intelligent clients that um, 80% of what lawyers do isn't rocket science. Um, And they're not tolerating... I need to stop you there. (laughs) How many years of uni not for rocket science? (laughs) (laughs) Matt, if, for example, with these law firms that are charging um, quite high fees for not rocket scientists work do they add value elsewhere to i guess maintain their high costs or is it something that their corporate clients have just got almost used to paying it it depends on the sophistication of of the purchaser if i can put it like that um (laughs) but um you know if you go to the plain old conveyancing solicitor um then people are just going on the web and, and finding a price um but not really knowing mm. what it is they're buying. My my experience of conveyance, my, my personal experience of conveyancing solicitors was that they've not looked at how they can make it uh, as efficient and as effective and, and as customer friendly as possible. But this is where the silver circle and magic circle, I think, will 
will very quickly win out over the next few years because they'll be able to provide the um, the more automated solutions. Um, mm-hmm. And so, if you if you think of it, think of it like accountants, then the the accountants that weren't thinking ahead um, were just providing the the hourly rate service. Um, and those that were thinking ahead were developing QuickBooks and, and things like that. And hey, presto, we've now got tax going digital. And mm-hmm. um, all those small businesses are now piling on and buying things like QuickBooks and getting rid of their traditional accountant. So I, I think um, whilst change always seems to happen slowest to lawyers, then I think change is coming. So I feel like we've touched on it slightly already. Um, If you could give advice to a future trainee like myself and Abby, what skills do you think lawyers of the future need? It's about thinking strategically as to where they fit within that firm um, and where where they see themselves in the next two, three, four years um, to then identify what they can do to... um, to develop themselves, um, certainly at Minster Law, and it was true at Mitchell's as well, then we're, we're keen as mustard for people <laughs> to develop themselves and we will invest as much as we can um, for people to develop themselves. I don't, I've, I've not seen a lack of appetite from, uh, from law firms to invest in people. Um, and then going back to what I'd said earlier and about the strategic view, um, as well as just thinking where where will I be in the next three or four years, then I think the biggest um, attribute that somebody could have and where they can add value to their firm is to have a constant um, question of why am I doing things this way? Um, because frequently then we do things because we've always done them that way. And... And if we think, well, why are we doing this? Is it getting the outcome for the client that we want? Is this the most effective way of doing it? Is this the best way for the firm? Can then lead people to um, come up with suggestions as to how things can be changed and that will get them noticed um, and hopefully also change things. Thanks so much to Matt for coming on to the show. Obviously, focusing on the day job is important, but Matt has attributed a lot of his success to being able to see the bigger picture. So always do a good job, but question why you're doing that job, why you've been told to do it that way, and whether there's room for any improvement. As always, please subscribe to the podcast and follow us at Virtually Legal Podcast on Instagram for more.